My name is Jonathan Shackleton. My cousin, Sir Ernest Shackleton, is probably Ireland's best-known explorer, celebrated internationally for his expeditions to Antarctica, and especially for his heroic feats of survival after his ship, the Endurance, became trapped in the ice. His ensuing journey to save his men has been chronicled in books, films and theatre. We all find ourselves asked to endure. In our case, to endure isolation, boredom and anxiety while we try to stop the spread of this virus and protect the health of ourselves and everyone else. In 1914, just before his endurance expedition, Shackleton wrote about what he felt were four qualities needed as a polar explorer, which he also felt were necessary for every person to go through this world successfully. He put these in the order he felt were most essential. These were, first, optimism, second, patience, third, idealism, fourth, courage. We can learn from Shackleton that these qualities can help us through the next few weeks and months. So we have highlighted and discussed them for you in this short podcast series. We hope you enjoy it. And if we've piqued your interest in Shackleton or polar exploration, then consider joining us at the next Shackleton Autumn School in Ireland at Athai, County Kildare. November 21st, 1915. This evening, as we were lying in our tents, we heard the boss call out, She's going, boys! We were out in a second, and up on the lookout station, and other points of vantage, and sure enough, there was our poor ship, a mile and a half away, struggling in her death agony. She went down bows first, her stern raised in the air. She then gave one quick dive, and the ice closed over her forever. It gave one a sickening sensation to see it, for massless and useless as she was, she seemed to be a link with the outer world. Without her, our destitution seemed more emphasised, our desolation more complete. The loss of the ship sent a slight wave of depression over the camp. No one said much, but we cannot be blamed for feeling it in a sentimental way. It seemed as if the moment of severance from many cherished associations, many happy moments, even stirring incidents, had come, and she silently upended to find a last resting place beneath the ice on which we now stand. When one knows every little nook and corner of one's ship, as we did, and it helped her time and again in the fight that she made so well, the actual parting was not without its pathos, and quite apart from one's own desolation, and I doubt if there were one amongst us who did not feel some personal emotion when Sir Ernest, standing on the top of the lookout, said somewhat sadly and quietly, She's gone, boys. So maybe you could just start by explaining who you are and how you got interested in Shackleton. My name is 
It's Kevin Kenny. Um, I'm a, a member of the Thai Shackleton Committee, which organises the Shackleton Autumn School. My interest in Shackleton began as a teenager when I had a just a random but fortuitous purchase of a, a second-hand copy of Treasure Island in, in a bookshop in Dublin. And it had a postcard as a page marker. Uh, that postcard turned out to be um, one from Ernest Shackleton to Jacob's Biscuits, thanking them for supplying biscuits to his Nimrod expedition, where he got closest to the South Pole in 1909. So we've just heard that the ship has gone down on the 21st of November 1915. Can you explain exactly which ship and what's going on? Yeah, so we're at a point in the, in the story of Ernest Shackleton's um, Transantarctic Expedition, also called after the ship, uh, the Endurance. And I think it's worth um, mentioning that the Endurance, its, its original name was Polaris, but Shackleton named it after the family motto, which was by endurance we conquer. That ship um, left London in August 1914, literally on, at the outbreak of World War One and Britain's involvement in it. Uh, sailed south, called to a whaling station, a Norwegian whaling station on the island of South Georgia, and then set off to land a party to cross Antarctica. The ship got stuck in the ice really in February 1915. And from then on, it just drifted with the ice slowly uh, pinching it and warping it and wrenching it apart until we come to that November date when the ship sank and the ice closed over and all was as if the ship had never existed. But I suppose before the ship sank, obviously they had come off the ship. And so what's their actual situation as that ship is sinking? Where where are they? Yeah, they had remained on the ship as long as possible. Um, about a month beforehand, in October, the ship was canting over uh, at such an angle that they couldn't actually stay on it. The water uh, was coming into it because of the, the pressure of the ice. Uh, so they abandoned ship and the order abandoned ship was issued by Shackleton and they moved onto the ice. They got what supplies they could off the ship. Um, they took the dogs, uh, sledges, any piece of equipment they could get, the lifeboats, of course, and they were camped on the ice they had to move camp once or twice because of cracks in the ice, but they were within sight of the ship. And this is not like ice on top of land. This is ice essentially floating in the sea. Yes, they're living on ice floes, floating ice, exactly. I mean, it was um, it was really an extreme predicament they were in. Uh, the ship was their home. It was their only way in and their only way out. And they watched it slowly tear up, being torn apart by forces that they just had no control over. And as they lived, camped close to it. Maybe you just expand a little bit on the kind of completeness of their isolation in that moment. Uh, yeah, OK. Uh, polar exploration was in its, uh, it's the South Pole particularly, uh, was in its infancy. The ro most remote place on the planet, the final frontier, really. And not just uh, an ordinary final frontier, if there is such a thing, but um, an extreme one with, you know, temperatures uh, sub-zero, uh, minus 10 Celsius, minus 20 Celsius, uh, winds, condition, you know, conditions that were just really, really extreme. Uh, they had no communication. It was still in, in the day of wooden ships and leather harnesses and canvas sails. 
they had brought a radio, an, an early radio with them, but the, the range, it just wasn't, wasn't going to um, pick up anything. So they were very, very much on their own. You know, had anything they were going to survive with, uh, they had to uh, have it with themselves or be able to come up with a solution and, and, and fabricate something or come with some sort of a workaround, as we'd call it today, or an innovation, maybe. So they were really on their own resources and on their own wits. World War One was raging at the time. Um, as I said, the, the ship had departed London uh, literally on the outbreak of World War One. So it was raging. They didn't know that. Um, but the outside world didn't know where they were and really weren't interested in coming to look for them because um, th- th- there was a war going on. And I suppose what's most remarkable about this story is that I know for myself that would induce a kind of extreme despair but probably I wouldn't have headed out for a trans transantarctic <laughs> exploration in the first place but they don't actually lose hope and the the theme of this particular episode is optimism which is one of the characteristics that Shackleton thought was most important for for life particularly for polar exploration but for life so how is it that they maintain any sense of optimism in this situation well, I, I think we, we have to go to Shackleton. And the the best summary of Shackleton that, that is out there is um, Scott for science and exploration, a Munsden for efficiency. Uh, but if you're in a tight corner and there's no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. And really, in an extreme situation, he was in his element. He was an, an optimist himself, as as you said. He he saw it as a really important quality. So his first words when they abandoned ship and camped on the ice, which was probably the moment of, uh, you know, the game changer, as we'd say nowadays, um, the ship was useless. They, they all knew their predicament. Uh, his first words, well, he gathered them around. He thanked them for all their efforts. He, he said himself he was, you know, dedicating himself to getting them all home. So his words were, the ship and stores are gone, so now we're going home. And people with him on that particular expedition, on that endurance expedition, some had been with him previously on previous expeditions, where similarly he had shown just a, a drive, an optimism and an ability to deliver on, on a vision that, that he would have. So his vision now was he was going to get everybody home. And he has a great belief himself that he's capable of getting them out of that predicament. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it's interesting how, how he did all that in that I suppose he shared his decisions and his decision-making with them, but he also took the responsibility and shielded them from, from some, um, some of the aspects. So... You know, as he says himself, he, he couldn't sleep at night a lot of the time. He paced up and down. His his mind was really bent towards uh, wh- how do I solve this problem? But he, he was resourceful. They had the lifeboats. They had Harry McNish, who was an absolutely, you know, talented carpenter. They had Frank Worsley, an amazing skipper and navigator. And with these resources, uh, I think Shackleton knew he could build on his vision of getting them to a safe place and then a small group using one of the lifeboats, which would be prepared as an almost a capsule. It was still a wooden boat with, with a canvas deck, but they were going to take on the um, the crossing of the South Atlantic 
um, to try and um, you know make land somewhere, create a link with the outside world, and and organise a rescue. So that was his big vision. And sort of to support that, you know, we see photographs of the James Caird being worked on as they lived on this floating ice. So months in advance of when it might be used, the preparations were in place. I think the second part of it was, so the vision was there and they could see, you know, work towards that vision in the boat being prepared. They all participated. They all helped in preparing the boat, but also in the practical day to day. So, for example, they were restricted in the weight of stuff they had with them because basically the ice could break at any stage and they would have to get into the lifeboats. So he limited them to uh, two pounds weight each. He led the throwing away the sovereigns he had in his pocket, throwing away his cigarette case. These things were useless now. But he encouraged them to bring letters from home, photographs of loved ones and so on. Again, the glass plate photographs, which uh, Frank Hurley was taking, the sailors are wondering, why are we hauling these big glass plates, these weighty, fragile glass plates around? Shackleton's answer was, when we get out of here, no one's going to believe what we've been through. This is our evidence. So on the day to day, it was being reinforced all the time that they were going home. It was just a matter of time. This isolation they were in, this desolation they were they were living around was time limited. And they had actually quite, quite a lot of the the, the comforts, believe it or not, even in that extreme climate. Um, they had food, they had water. Uh, they were able to shoot seals and so on. Uh, so they, they built up a larder of food. Uh, they cooked meals at, at regular times and they had entertainment and music. Leonard Hussey, who, who had the banjo, he was leaving it, go down with the wreck. But, but Shackleton produced it from the wreck and, and, and insisted he bring it with him. It would be, and, and listen to these words, it would be vital mental medicine for the men over the next months. So practically... Life was going on. It was harsh. They were all in it together, being treated equally. And they were all working towards a vision. And I think when you put those two things through, the situation was as good as it could be and probably tolerable. And, and hope, hope was, was being maintained all the time. Are there lessons we could take from Shackleton in terms of how to cope with the stresses and pressures that all of us are under at the minute in terms of dealing with the pandemic situation, which we hope is going to have an end point. I think there's a lot of parallels with Shackleton's experience um, and his team on the endurance. A few parallels that that come up, um, maybe top line ones would be, you know, optimism. That has to be a starting point to have optimism and hope. I think that can be supported and, and you need support for your optimism. You need support for your hope over time, over ups and downs. But we really have to have trust in those who are leading this situation nationally. And there are clear communications, clear messages and clear information coming out. There's no sense that anything big is being held back or covered up. And, you know, I, I, I think certainly they are positioning themselves really well that we can have trust in their skills and their their own efforts and their own drive, their their own target to get us through this this piece. But I think good leaders need good followers. And that's what we can do. And again, with Shackleton, you know, everybody contributed 
everybody was empowered to contribute to the best of their ability. So the carpenter, the cook, uh, the lookout, the inventive ones, uh, you know, Frank Hurley fashioned um, a sort of a boiler canteen out of the old um, ash chute from the endurance. And, and that really moved the whole thing on. They could now cook for the whole group. So, you know, everybody can contribute to this. And and the, the, probably the, the first contribution you make is your optimism and doing what's been asked of you to do. That's really important. Anything outside of it can can also help the effort. And can I just ask you briefly, is there anything you're doing in particular that helps you maintain optimism and hope? Well, yeah, yeah I suppose that there are a few. Personally, I was able to volunteer on a helpline through my work. I'm also involved in um, a charity, which my skills aren't relevant to what the charity is trying to do. It's, it's a medical charity, but um, certainly in terms of things like leadership and trying to um, help iron out s- some of the organisational type, type issues that might come in. But just in terms of, I suppose, personally here, one aspect of the, the whole Shackleton's uh, survival, as they were uh, drifting on, on the uh, flowing ice, on the ice flow, there was a theory that the ice drifted north out of that part of Antarctica. So drifted out towards um, warmer climates, slightly warmer climates, and towards some islands on the edge of the Antarctic where whaling uh, expeditions and so on would visit. So, So obviously, if that was true... By staying on the ice, the drift would bring them uh, towards somewhere that they could possibly, you know, meet with a, a whaling expedition and, and organise a rescue. And what I think was really interesting was Shackleton's set up Frank Worsley, who was the navigator. And each day, Frank Worsley would look at the latitude and longitude and um, their position. And as the position started to show that, that the theory was true, so they were drifting this way the spirits spirits rose. So though they were in a situation that had been created by forces of nature way outside their control, and they weren't able to control it, but they were able to influence their own survival or they were able to see that the situation was improving. And I think similarly, it's funny, but I think the figures that we all tune into, and I mean, they're macabre figures, maybe in, in some ways it's it's positive tests and, and deaths whatever else. So I'm not, not at all trying to, to make them out to be good things. But if we watch those and if we see the effects that they're not rising out of control, that may be leveling out, maybe even start decreasing. And, and, and this is the, the, the hope that the approach that's been taken will, will, will do that. We can see that though the situation isn't in control, isn't in our control, what's happening is containing the situation and improving our lot. It must, however, be said that we did not give way to depression for long, for soon everyone was as cheery as usual. Laughter rang out from the tents, and even the boss had a passage at arms with the storekeeper over the inadequacy of the sausage ration, insisting that there should be two each, because they were such little ones, instead of the one and a half that the latter proposed.
Thank you for listening to What Would Shackleton Do? My name is Juliana Edelman. I'm a historian. I'd like to thank the following contributors to this episode. Jonathan Shackleton is an Irish-born family historian and Antarctic expert with many other interests, including natural history and forestry. Kevin Kenny is a member of the Shackleton Committee in Athai County Kildare and an unapologetic fan of all things Shackleton. The music is from Shackleton's Endurance, commissioned by the Shackleton Museum in 2014 on the centenary of the Endurance Expedition. The music is by Brian Hughes, and the narrative, which we didn't hear, is by John McKenna. John Carty is an actor and founding member of the Blue Raincoat Theatre Company based in Sligo. He read two extracts from Shackleton's book, South. Thanks again for listening. You can follow the museum on Twitter, at Athai Heritage, or me, at Edelman Juliana. And please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.